Katie. And I'm Steve. And this is the City of Reading Podcast. Welcome to the City of Reading Podcast. And today we are lucky to interview Fire Marshal Craig Whitner. Tell us uh, a little bit about what you do for the city. So my name's Craig Whitner. work for the Reading Fire Department. I've been with the city uh, about 20 years and about 16 of that with the fire department. Uh, for many years, I was a fire inspector, did investigations and inspections. In the last three years, uh, as fire marshal, I just oversee those subjects, public education, investigations, uh, code enforcement, uh, those types of things, fire department policy. And uh, one of those major topics is, of course, public education about uh, reducing risk. So I'm glad to talk about it today. We're happy to have you here. Uh, two of the main topics we were hoping to cover today are, are both on kind of wildfire mitigation in general and, and uh, how the Reading community can kind of best prepare them, their homes and harden their homes against wildfire. And then obviously talk a little bit about the car fire and some of the key takeaways um, that you and your team uh, found from that and how, again, how we can best prepare ourselves. Um, so maybe we start with just wildfire mitigation in general. Okay. So, uh, folks who have heard me before, and I'll say it again, I, I sound like a broken record. I've always t- talking about the same topics, but they're important. I'll start off by saying in the last 20 years in the fire service, um, if you listen to safety tips, whether it's CAL FIRE or whatever your local agency is, you'll recognize the term defensible space. Um, that is important. So basically, the state law is that all of us uh, should have, are uh, required to have at least 100-foot defensible space from our homes or structures. That doesn't mean clear-cutting. That means strategically reducing the fuels uh, to the extent that when a, a fire does occur, it doesn't have the speed and intensity um, to get to our homes. That's the goal. But in the last couple of years, uh, since the city was a benefactor of a program called the Community Planning Assistance for Wildfire Program, well, since CEPAW, uh, we have learned um, a great deal, uh, as well as we've had a couple of major fires. Of course, we had the car fire in 2018, then most recently the Zog fire. And in addition to defensible space, we've learned about a term called the home ignition zone. Now, the term may be newer to us, the theory is not. The theory is, or reality really, is that we can have all the defensible space uh, that we need and more, but if we, our weak link is essentially how we set up our homes. And it has to do with vegetation, landscape bark, uh, wood fences, storage, potted plants, wooden decks, those types of things. In, I'll step back a little bit. In 2008, uh, we adopted uh, state standards for construction, uh, essentially construction standards for uh, buildings in the Walden Urban Interface, or WUI. So basically, prior to 2008, you had a variety of, of ways to build a home where we interface with our environment, the wildland. After 2008, we have some stricter standards. We know that if we build an ignition-resistant home with existent, uh, ignition-resistant materials, we reduce our risk and uh, increase our chances of surviving unscathed in the event of a wildfire. What we learned since then is that uh, even if we apply our construction standards um, as we should, we can still lose our homes because our weak links are at least threefold. Um, primarily what we learned during CAR was um, landscape vegetation uh, really does affect the vulnerability of our homes. 
So we, as people, we like to decorate our homes. We like to have plants and living things around our house. Unfortunately, that's a detractor when you talk about wildfire. So uh, what we observed during CAR, the number one thing that affected the, the damage or destruction of our homes in the city was landscape vegetation. When you plant that around the exterior walls of your home, and particularly those of us, and I was guilty of this too, who don't maintain it free and clear of dead litter, that is nothing more than a light, flashy fuel and very susceptible to ignition by the millions of little firebrands or flying embers uh, coming from a fire. We don't have to be right up against the fire to, to have a threat. Those firebrands come down and they easily land in uh, light fuels like leaves and needles and such. And you're talking about like... Um, ash and uh, burning leaves and things that are actually falling from the sky, right? Like if there Absolutely. is a fire somewhere else, yep. there's these are the little things that are falling into your yep. yard and then catching other things on fire, yeah, correct? just like sitting around a campfire, you see the sparks and stuff that come up off the fire and sometimes they fly over our shoulders and sometimes they land on us, right? Well, during a wildfire, billions and trillions of those things are flying around and during car fire, we had ignitions that were well over a half a mile from the main fire uh, firebrands. Yeah. Firebrands uh, are, are easily uh, responsible for burning down neighborhoods and entire areas because wow. they can travel actually uh, well over a mile in advance of the main fire. Well, those firebrands come down, they land in the you know, punky bark, they land in the, the needles, uh, the leaves on top of our roof and our gutter, on our patio furniture, you name it, and they can easily start small fires. And so vegetation was ignited um, all over uh, the city and the areas adjacent to the fire. Uh, the, the land park uh, subdivision down there off of Harland, I mean, uh, they were landing everywhere. Um, and so when they landed in the vegetation, the vegetation starts burning, and it's right up against the exterior walls of our home. And it also, in addition to uh, impacting the exterior walls, it burns up our walls and enters our attic space through our events. Mm-hmm. It's a strange little phenomenon. If you've, if you've ever seen it, it looks like it's being sucked up into the attic space like a vacuum cleaner. Mm-hmm. And so it's another way that uh, those flying embers uh, or firebrands can get in our home and actually set our home on fire. So that's vegetation. Uh, the next major factor was landscape bark. Landscape bark is plentiful, it's cheap, and even if you're not real able-bodied, you can obtain some, you can put it down to get instant gratification for making your landscaping look nicer. Landscape bark, honestly, is really good for one thing, and that's uh, taking fire from point A to point B. And it has 100% consumption unless uh, you know somebody acts on it by putting the fire out or it burns itself out. When we do landscape with it, we put it right up against the foundations of our home and many times it's contacting our exterior siding. Doesn't matter whether it's wood siding or stucco, uh, non-combustible siding. That heat easily, easily transfers from the burning bark to the wood framing members or other combustible members of our homes and causes ignition. Uh, We have a lot of studies after car and other fires where that was the case on on many homes. Uh, The third factor was wood fences. Now, wood fences are not going away. Uh, Again, wood is plentiful. Uh, You can work with it, and it's uh, relatively affordable. Most of us have wood fences contacting both sides of our home. And in a fire condition, it really is nothing more than a slow-burning fuse that actually burns and and contacts the exterior wall of your home. And just like vegetation, 
while the wood fence is burning, it's impacting the exterior wall and then burning up the wall underneath the eave and entering your attic space through the eave vents. So I'm not suggesting that we have to stop using wood fences, but an alternative would be replace the first five feet of those wood fences that contacts the home with something non-combustible like wrought iron or chain link or something of that nature. Another thing that we can do to reduce the risk of embers or fire getting in the home is replacing your e-vents with fire-rated e-vents. There's a couple different companies out there that produce them. Uh, Vulcan Vents, one company. Uh, Brand Guard Vents is another. And then another company called Embers Out, LLC. They manufacture products which have been listed and approved by the California State Fire Marshal as for using uh, your construction methods in the Walden Urban Interface. And even if we're not talking a fire season condition, by having fire-rated vents, you can reduce the impact and the potential for other types of fires to get into your home, too. Garbage cans, for example. Mm. Most of us put our garbage cans in the same spot. It's right on the side of the garage, underneath the, the eave, and when garbage cans burn for a variety of reasons, whether it's you know ashes improperly dumped uh, or cigarettes or something of that nature, most of those cans are just plastic, and plastic burns vigorously, and once again, it burns up and enters our attic space. So we can apply our fire-rated events in locations strategically to reduce the risk of fire getting into our attic space. And Craig, with regard to those events, uh, I guess twofold, how, how much is, uh, do some of those fire-related you know, fire events cost, and what is the process for updating you know, a home's current events? I mean, is that something that they kind of your average person can do, or does it have to be professionally installed? That's an excellent question. So you're your typical event in the majority of our homes out there, mine included, uh, probably about five bucks a piece that was installed by the contractor when your home was built. And most comply with, uh, even the, the ones that comply with current code with an eighth or a sixteenth inch mesh uh, still uh, have been proven to allow the passage of heat and firebrands. The cost, your average cost of, say, a Vulcan vent or a brand guard vent, a fire rated event, is about $45. So the, the cost is somewhat substantial when you're looking at replacing a multitude of them. If you replace 10 of them, then you're looking at almost 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. But the, the long-term risk reduction, in my opinion, is, is definitely worth it. Um, if a person uh, says, you know, there's no way I can replace 25 vents in my home at $45 a piece, one could consider strategically replacing some of those vents where they have uh, landscape vegetation, where they store their garbage cans, uh, things like that. So landscape vegetation, bark, and wood fences were the top three things. And kind of the, the remainder of that is just general storage items, combustible patio furniture, uh, wood decks, uh, potted plants, wood piles are another one. I mean, during inclement weather, none of us want to have to walk several feet to get wood for the fireplace. We want to conveniently reach over the deck or something and get our wood. So uh, if you do that during the summer times uh, and and hot weather months, you want to move that wood pile away from the home and out of underneath the roof eaves. And so there's a multitude of things that we store around the outside walls of our home. And so folks listening to this can really reduce their risk by making that first five feet around the outside walls of their home, which is called the home ignition zone or structure ignition zone, make that free and clear of the items that we just talked about. You know, reduce to as much as you possibly can the amount of vegetation that's within five feet of your home or severely cut it back. And does that even mean green vegetation? Like, what if it's something that's really... 
bright and green and vibrant. I mean, does that does that stuff burn just as easily as I don't know something like juniper or something that people know is a little bit more fire prone? Yeah, you got it. So um, the answer is is yes and no. If you have, even though it's green vegetation right now, it's irrigated and watered, a fire really doesn't care. It may take a little bit longer to dry it out, but it's eventually going to burn. The key to that really is maintenance. So all plants shed their leaves or needles, and they build up on the ground. It's called duff. Well, you need to remove that. That's what's easily ignited by those fire brands. So uh, once again, you don't have to remove the plants, but you can reduce them in size and you can maintain those areas free and clear of the dead litter, which is easily ignitable by firebrands. So <clears throat> by no means do I suggest that people need to rip out all their beautiful landscaping, but, but strongly consider reducing the amount and keep that free and clear of leaf litter. And, and with regard to, to tan bark, would you recommend river rock or some type of rock material other than tan bark? Absolutely. So we can still use landscape bark, but we need to be smart about it and be strategic. Do not use it around the exterior walls of your home or around your decks or fences. Use it maybe in an island or something away from the home. But instead, replace those areas either with just bare dirt. That was my choice around my home because I had lots of landscape bark as well. Or replace it with something non-combustible like cobbles or river rock or something like that, which you know is not going to burn. You can still have a decorative uh, environment and really reduce your risk. So we, if we talk about storage items um, and, and decoration items, I mean, people can't do much about a deck, right? Doesn't that, I yep. mean, that would be a really expensive thing to replace. Or it is. Are there alternatives to materials? If you're thinking about building a deck, that you would yes. build a deck out of fire-resistant materials? Or if you have a deck, is there a stain or anything you can lay down that would help? Another excellent question. So <clears throat> for people who are building a new home, consider uh, more ignition-resistant materials like Trex decking or a, uh, some type of a composite decking other than natural wood. I have natural wood decks uh, at my house, and I love them. The key to folks, uh, those of us who have natural wood decks, is to keep them free of litter. If it's an elevated deck, you want to make sure to remove um, weeds and combustible vegetation under and around the deck. And you're going to have to maintain your deck free and clear of buildup or leaf litter. In between those decking boards, uh, where your boards attached to the stringers or joists, is always a buildup of material. That's the stuff that falls through and it lands on that joist down below. That stuff is easily ignitable. We, we uh, responded to fires many times over the years from not just fire brands, but maybe a barbecue ashes or cigarettes that happen to land in that little space. So it's, take a garden hose and keep that stuff um, sprayed off. For those of us who have existing decks, it's really about maintenance. And then I also wanted to touch on something I found really interesting um, during the car fire was uh, a lot of people think stucco homes can't burn. But you're saying, again, that if you have bark or vegetation under there, that it kind of creeps underneath that stucco and then up into the walls, correct? It it does, absolutely. So a good example of that was uh, one of the subdivisions uh, called Land Park Subdivision um, over off of Buenaventura and Keswick Dam Road. Um, They have an even mixture of pre-2008 and post-2008 structures, meaning homes that were built with construction or ignition-resistant materials and those that were not. They burned fairly evenly because of the items that we just uh, talked about, vegetation, landscape, bark, wood fences, and the like. 
Um, so in the case of stucco exterior siding, that is one of the approved materials to use in, the, uh, in, in those areas, the Wildland Urban Interface areas. However, the weak link is landscape bark and other combustibles that you put up against the exterior wall of the home. In the case of stucco, where you put bark on the ground, it's going to be under what we call the weep screed. It's nothing more than air openings at the bottom of the stucco wall that allow moisture to, to get out of the home. Well, fire and heat gets right up into the weep screed and directly impacts the wood framing underneath. And in the case, it, for example, if, if, if it doesn't get in through the weep screed, that energy is easily transmitted through that thin wall of stucco to the framing members uh, inside. So the key is to eliminate the weak link, eliminate those combustibles in that first five feet of our home, and you dramatically reduce your risk. Then the ignition-resistant materials can do their job. But we, we kind of uh, abate or omit the thought of having ignition-resistant materials if we're using combustible items uh, on the outside walls of our homes. So it really does come down to that home ignition right. zone and really what does. you're planting and what you're putting around your home is so important. It is. And, and Craig, with regard to those folks that live on, on acreage or have, you know, have some property, what's the, what are kind of the rules and regulations around clear cutting? How far away from your home should you be, um, you know, again, addressing overgrowth and things of that nature? So the state laws is fairly simple, uh, and it applies to all of us, whether we have acreage or not. Our responsibility as a property owner is to provide uh, at least 100 feet of defensible space. There's a couple of different zones. We just talked about the home ignition zone, which is that first five feet. But the first 30 feet from the exterior walls of our home is, is generally referred to as zone one. And that's filled uh, with your ornamentals, your landscape plants, et cetera. And then uh, beyond that is your uh, second zone, which goes from 30 feet to 100 feet. Um, that's just a reduced uh, area. So we recommend folks, whether you have a small lot or a large lot, that in that uh, second zone, it doesn't mean clear cutting, it just means reducing uh, the amount of fuels there. Really what you're looking at is a separation, a horizontal separation from say shrub to shrub, and then obviously a vertical separation from your ground fuels like your shrubs and bushes to what we call your ladder fuels, which are your trees. We wanna keep fire on the ground and uh, not allow it to get up into the canopy. So we do that by reducing the amount of ground fuels at the base of a tree, and then we do that also by what we call lollipopping or limbing up the tree six or eight feet off the ground. Remember, we can never really prevent fire, but what we can do is make an attempt to keep fire on the ground. We want to slow it down and we want to reduce its intensity. So, um, and I'm assuming it gets a lot more intense once it makes it up into that canopy. Absolutely. And of course, you know, folks who live above a fuel source on a hill, uh, you've got a little greater threat. So maybe 100 feet is not enough. Maybe you want to increase that to 150 or 200 feet. Again, it does not mean clear cutting. It means reducing the available fuels. So I would say the, the home ignition zone, that first five feet, is the barest uh, that, that it can possibly be. And then up to 30 feet from the home is just a reduced area, like again, you know, green um, uh, ornamentals and, and landscaped plants and vegetation. And then that last zone up to 100 feet or to the property line, whichever is closer. That's where you want to reduce anything and prevent it from getting into the tree canopy. And for those, uh, it can be confusing sometimes, call your local fire agency. We work for the people, whether it's Anderson, uh, Cottonwood, City of Reading, Cal 
fire, it makes no difference. There's a fire agency that works for everybody. So reach out to your local fire agency, um, or you can get online. There are, there's four main players, I like to call them, uh, in the fire world for information that's available at your fingertips. Uh, the first is readyforwildfire.org. Uh, that is a very well put together website by Cal Fire, and it's, it's been uh, years and a lot of resources put into it. And that really covers everything. It talks about the home ignition zone, talks about defensible space, uh, even uh, when to evacuate, what to take, how to be prepared. Um, and then there's nfpa.org. That's short for the National Fire Protection Association. Again, a very informative site. Uh, there's also ready.gov and fema.gov. And then, of course, our own information on the City of Reading website, which also refers uh, to other information on the web. But reach out to your local fire agency. Ask to speak to you know an inspector or the fire marshal and ask if there's any particular requirements in the area that they live. Good. And, and Craig, uh, what are some things that the Reading Fire Department is actively doing citywide to, to help you know, address wildfire mitigation and just help ensure that the city is as best prepared as possible? Okay. Well, so for years, uh, the city of Reading Fire Department has contracted with CAL FIRE with the use of their sugar pine crews, the CNMAG crews. Now, these folks, although incarcerated, have been trained and they volunteer to work uh, in the wildland reducing fuels and working on wildfires and such. And so we have for many years used the sugar pine crews for fuels reduction citywide. Unfortunately, those crews are shrinking uh, in the amount of crews and then the people on the crew. They're a little harder to work with, um, but we also contract with the California Conservation Corps uh, to work projects uh, around the city, um, as well as a program that the Reading Electric Utility uh, came up with um, called the uh, Reading Electric Utility uh, Wildfire Mitigation and Improved Response Program. What that program did uh, that was approved by council essentially hired six full-time firefighters to staff engines year-round, and then also uh, we hired um, 12 apprentice firefighters to serve dual roles. They'll staff engines during the critical summer months, and then when fire season is done here real shortly, they'll come off the engines and they'll work essentially as a fuels reduction crew throughout the winter months. And we have a host of priority projects. Uh, some projects that we uh, completed in the last couple of years have been the Royal Project and Scenic Projects over in the uh, Sunset Terrace neighborhood, basically the city-owned open space. We went in and applied the 100-foot-plus defensible space from property lines. Um, and then last year we completed uh, the um, Quail Ridge project. That was 46 acres uh, to the east of essentially the uh, Boulder Creek School in the Quail Ridge subdivision. Again, applying that same 100 foot plus from property lines and reducing fuels. And for those residents who live there, uh, there was some concern that it would really change their environment. We live where we live because we like nature and we don't want that taken away, but we do have a concern for wildfire. Well, we were able to do what's called a shaded fuel break, which reduced risks for those um, residents that live in that uh, wild and urban interface area, but maintain a beautiful, aesthetic, and natural-looking environment. So it was uh, exceptionally well-received by, by residents who saw the direct uh, impact to them. Um, I'm assuming you also have plans for other neighborhoods in the city, too. You probably have your eye on a few others that, that need it um, over the course of the years, and you'll just kind of hit those yep. one by one. So some top priorities continue to be Country Heights, uh, the Panorama neighborhood, 
Uh, this year, we're also going to be paying attention to uh, the neighborhood up uh, Quartz Hill Road, the Terra Nova neighborhood, and that open space meets up with Panorama. You know, we, uh, we've completed a lot of acreage uh, in the last many years. And then, of course, we were all impacted by the snowstorms, I believe it was mm-hmm. February 2019. Yep. And that really set us back a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we continue to, uh, to maintain and look at new areas as well as return to areas that we've already completed because of that snow damage. Right. And, and Craig, if if uh, community members have areas that they you know feel are problematic or want to see addressed, what's the process for them? Can they request that from the Red and Fire Department, or how, do, how does that piece of it work? So uh, for those that have issues or complaints with vegetation, if they go to the Reading Fire Department website, there's uh, six red buttons on the bottom, and one is titled Report. That'll open up a hazardous vegetation reporting form. It takes about a minute and a half just to give us who you are, where you're at, what the complaint is, and every single one is in inspected. Uh, Some are more minor in nature, uh, but will still be addressed. And some will be uh, priorities, which will be addressed sooner rather than later. So that's an easy way to do it. You can also call the Reading Fire Department, but uh, completing that form online is a very easy way to do that. And then we can track our complaints too. You know, one subject I haven't mentioned that we've talked about before is the goats. Yes, the goats. Everyone loves the goats. So the goats have been an exceptionally popular program. Um, Other areas in the state have been using goats successfully for fuel reduction for many many years so we didn't we just we didn't reinvent the wheel Uh, we just thought well why can't we do that here so we did and to date uh, the goats have have reduced uh, about 90 acres in the last couple years of of various uh, fuels in in areas like I think our first project recently was off of Buenaventura there was 33 acres there that they uh, munched now that's a short-term fix that takes care of the light flashy fuels for that particular season that'll need to be revisited but the popularity of the goats, uh, my, my biggest benefit, at least in my mind, of the goats is people like the goats, and it starts them discussing. It, it opens the topic of fuels reduction and fire safety. Uh, so I think that's a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. What is the effectiveness of the goat strike force uh, compared to kind of your average, uh, you know, fire, fire, fire to force? So costs are relatively comparable. Uh, for example, uh, per acre costs are right around $700 an acre to use the goats. Um, but you also have to weigh in availability of, of other options. For example, contracting with private companies, at least in the last three years, prices have increased significantly because of demand. Uh, and not to mention, they may not be available. Uh, also, the reduction in the amount of sugar pine crews and the availability of those crews um, not being available because of other large projects, you know, up in Shingletown or elsewhere uh, in the county, they may not might be an available option. Uh, the California Conservation Corps is another option, but it's a little more uh, costly uh, than the goats are. So I think with goats, although you have a fixed price point per acre, the benefit of getting people interested in the topic of uh, fuels reduction and fire safety uh, is, is overwhelming. So we're going to continue to use the goats. Thanks for listening this week. To ask a question or suggest a future episode, send an email to podcast at cityofreading.org or tweet us at cityofreading.org.